Hey everyone, it's the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast coming at you. Merry belated Christmas. Happy current Hanukkah, I guess, uh, as the holiday season is upon us, sort of past us, ahead of us, but we are here the day after Christmas to come and bring you some Bengals insight based on some things that have been happening, as we do every week, and I am joined by John. John, uh, good to good to see you, my man. I, I know you had a good eventful Christmas, and um, did you get any Bengals swag? I, I forget. Did you tell me that? I haven't asked for any of that in about three years. <laughs> Not only do I have enough, there's there's just so much that you can pick. Like, yeah, I want some Bengals. Oh, that's right. You're the Bengals guy. So I just I, I try to ask for other stuff, yeah. especially, especially this week with what happened. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I got a, uh, I got a couple things. I got a really cool shirt. I should have worn it on the air. It's, uh, it's pretty funny, pretty creative. But um, other than that, I didn't really ask for much either. So I didn't receive much, and I didn't give much either. I think I gave only uh, one true Bengals thing to to my brother. Other things maybe had some color schemes to it or something. But other than that, nothing, nothing specific. But we've got a lot to get to tonight. And a lot to get to before our first. This is our final show of 2019, John. We've uh, this show's now done. Um, gosh, we have completed I think four full seasons on this show. Unfortunately, those seasons <laughs> have not been. None of them have been a winning season, but that's okay. 2020 is ahead of us. It's a new year ahead of us, so we're going to talk about what's ahead for the new year in terms of what the Bengals should be aiming for as a as franchise goals. We'll be talking about the fact that they won last weekend despite not having a victory based on the scoreboard. And we'll talk, we'll continue our prospect watch list. John and I have a prospect each that we're going to talk about. We've we've had special guests come on in recent weeks to talk about the quarterbacks, but it's back to us playing armchair scout, if you will, and uh, talking about some some intriguing prospects coming up in the draft that the Bengals could be targeting or just maybe, you know, Guys that could be fits or guys to keep an eye on, especially as bowl season is upon us. You can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. You can get it on Megaphone. It's on iHeartRadio, obviously our YouTube channel. So subscribe there. Get the show. However you listen to podcasts and all of our stuff is on CincyJungle.com. It's really great to see all of you joining us right after the holiday. We appreciate the support and we appreciate all the commentary, positive and negative, about our show. And then obviously you guys interact with each other, which is pretty cool. As I teased here, John, uh, very rarely does a team win when they lose. But I guess in the case of the Cincinnati Bengals and the fact that they lost to the Miami Dolphins this last weekend, they are now set to have the top pick in the next in next year's draft no matter what happens this final week no matter who wins who loses the Cincinnati Bengals now have the number one pick we want to get to that in a second but in a way that only the Bengals can do John they almost didn't give what a lot of people wanted they almost won a useless game against a then three win team uh <laughs> probably the most if not if not close to the most exciting game the Bengals have played this year. What were you, what was going through your mind when the Bengals put that thing to overtime and, uh, you know, scored, God, it was what three touchdowns and two, two point conversions in the, in the final quarter. It was 16 points 
in the final 29 seconds, which apparently has never happened before. It was yet yeah, coming back from a 23 point deficit in the final 11 or 12 minutes in the fourth quarter. It, it was when the Dolphins got to 35 that I, I messaged our, our boss, Jason Markham, um, that, yeah, I think they actually did it this time. And I didn't get a response back from him for like three minutes. Or like He's like, maybe. You know, I'm just like, yeah, because he's he's as much of a pessimist as we are. But honestly, like it, it was it was so surreal because this was without a doubt their most important game in the last four years. This is the most important game since that playoff game that they absolutely blew against Pittsburgh because of the implications just surrounding it. The fact that that they had a chance to clinch the number one overall pick without having to do anything the following week. And they were so close to doing it because the, I don't know. I don't know about you, but through the first, I don't know, eight or seven minutes of the first quarter, it honestly looked like they did give up. And yep. it, it, I, I never like throughout this year. I never once thought that this team was was on the verge of quitting. Like I, they they fought hard for fourteen weeks this year. A lot of them ended up being close losses, but never once did I think that this team is actively trying to lose until I saw the first seven minutes because there's no way they should have came out of the gate that flat. And it honestly looked like they were if not sending a message, just honestly tired of all the crap this year and something clicked. I don't know what, I don't know what it was, but something did click either towards, you know, the beginning of, of, of the the third quarter or maybe towards more towards the fourth quarter where this team just, just turned it on again. And this was a matchup that they should have taken advantage of. The Dolphins have without a doubt, the worst defense in the NFL. Ryan Fitzpatrick had himself a good game, but he honestly is really dependent upon which defense he faces himself and there was no reason for Fitzpatrick to completely light the Bengals secondary up the way that he did. So it was like, okay, the Dolphins, I guess, are going to win this one. And then all of a sudden, the, the craziest Bengals game I've ever seen before my two eyes is happening. I'm like, there's no way this can be happening. There's no way that they can look so bad in the beginning of this game, but just happen to fall into the first overall pick and then all of a sudden blow, blow everything up in, in itself. And it's, this is the second time. In the last two times I've been in Miami, that the game has gone to overtime. And, of course, it ends in the most wackiest way possible, like it did the last time when Dahl was, was sacked in the end zone for a safety that ended up losing that game back in Halloween 2013. So it was – I've never been that emotionally invested in a game since the playoff game. And my heart rate was pounding because I, I, I didn't want them to lose. But, honestly, like it was just so – surreal to watch it happen because it, it's like it's, – it's only this team. It's only the Bengals. It's only them that can – make you go through five or six different emotions simultaneously while they're doing the most miraculous thing possible while also hurting themselves in the process. But at the end of the day, it's a loss. So that's really all that matters. Look, there, there are a couple, and we'll get to the number one overall pick and the implications and all that kind of stuff. Look, if the Bengals were to lose and were to lock up the number one overall, there, there are a couple thoughts here, and this was one that I had. If the Bengals were to lose and to lock up the number one overall pick to get whoever that may be, we'll talk about that in a second, at the top of next year's draft, that was the way to do it. They did it exciting. They came back. They fought hard. They, I mean, John, three touchdowns, two two-point conversions, and a recovered onside kick in the fourth quarter. That is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. I've, I don't think I've ever seen that before. No. From any team, I, I like college or pro. I don't think I've ever seen a, a team be able to do that. It was utterly ridiculous. But like you said, I, I I looked at the first, God, first two and a half plus, maybe even three quarters in that game, and I'm like, this team mailed it in. 
This team absolutely mailed it in. They're not doing anything correctly. They don't. There are there are times when this team has traveled and traveled great distances and has not have not shown up. And I thought that this game was one of them. Well, they proved us wrong. They came back. You you can say oh, some of that stuff was in garbage time. Maybe the Dolphins took their foot off the gas when they were up. God, what was it, thirty five to eighteen or something to that effect? You, you can you can make an argument, and there's maybe some validity there. But the Bengals took advantage. Andy Dalton spread the ball around well. He threw, I think it was four touchdowns to four different receivers. So, um, you know, kudos to him. A career day for him. Kudos to the Bengals for fighting back, but they got the result that many people wanted. The second thought before we get to the actual top pick implications, and if you want to chime in on this, John, I'd love to hear it. My second thought about it is, look, there are some people now who look at the career day from Andy Dalton, almost 400 yards passing, four touchdowns, zero interceptions. He did have the lost fumble. Fought through some some pretty poor protection. No run game to speak of this week, which was kind of surprising against Miami. And his receivers, really for the most part, were struggling getting open. Um, you know, the, he made some great throws. The touch, the 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 ball up the sideline to Tyler Boyd, where he he kind of led him. Boyd wasn't open at first. Got open, kind of. You know, Boyd made a great catch tumbled into the end zone. I mean, there are a lot of good throws. There were some bad throws. And some people look at this game now and you go, oh boy, well, here here comes the Andy Dalton debate and the Andy Dalton love. Look, this was, this was a trademark performance by Andy Dalton in the settings and venue in which he always thrives. 1 p.m. Eastern against a team that's not very good. He comes from behind and, you know, maybe a team kind of loosened up a little bit on defense. Kudos to him. He took advantage of it and he played well, but it took him two and a half quarters to do that. And I mean, to me, this, this was the, the consummate Andy Dalton game, not a great opponent comes back, puts up big stats. Like he, like, (laughs) like he sometimes does. And now for some people, I don't think for you or I, but for some people it creates a hmm type of type of pause. So I I think, like halfway through the game, there was this thought going around of like Dalton has played himself out of trade value right now. And it's yeah. possible. It's, it's more than it's more than likely that the Bengals are going to try to trade Dalton. And if he had finished the game in the second half, the way he finished the first half, that trade value would have gone down immensely. And I think he did a great job of, of himself just fighting back because he had no intentions of losing this game. He didn't want to lose. He wasn't in on the tank. None of these veterans are. But, you know, even like you said, four touchdowns, interceptions, almost 400 yards. He still finished 23rd in the NFL this week and uh, expected points added per play, 17th in total QBR and 15th in pro football focus grade. So, again, all in the average or slightly below average areas. So, yeah, it is the constant dog game. It looks good on paper, but on a play for play basis, obviously the consistency was just not there. And, and again, this is one. Of, this was the worst defense in the league coming into this game. And he had a healthy John Ross. He had a healthy Tyler Boyd. He had a healthy... Uh, CG Uzomi had a healthy Tyler Eifert and they just couldn't really get anything going. And I think like, I, I think we, we both noticed that the running game was just, just non-existent. And there was the report of Joe Mixon being limited with, with I think a stomach bug, yeah. but even, even still like the run blocking was just, just absolutely putrid. And the, the Dolphins have no one to speak of on the defense line beside from their rookie Christian Wilkins. So there was no support there, but even still like, it was just like, it just wasn't good enough. And like, he was just missing constantly throughout the first half. And, Again, something clicked, and I don't know if it was just pissed off Dalton again, like we've seen a couple of times this year. But they they just played 
they played better than what, what they should have expected to be to be. But I think it kind of all kind of caught up at the end. Like this is these are still talented receivers. This is still a fairly accurate quarterback in some situations against a putrid secondary. So it kind of just came on at the right time for them. And unfortunately, all that goodness in the second half didn't translate into the into overtime. They had I think two or three possessions. They only got a couple of first yeah. downs. Didn't, didn't put themselves in the, in the position to score, and it's ultimately why they lost the game. So it, it was it was almost enough towards the very end, but again, it just wasn't enough to really close the deal. And like you said, it's just the consummate Dalton game. Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's a slight in, in me saying that, but I mean, he did play well. He he put up the stats and the numbers, but you you said there, you know, as you mentioned, there are some kind of hidden hidden, uh, I guess, stuff for lack of better words, hidden stuff behind those stats. Uh, but hey, Cincinnati lost. They lost in entertaining fashion. And now we have the bittersweet. For some people, it's just sweet at this point in the year. But it is a bittersweet feeling that Cincinnati locked up the number one pick. I mean, I think as uh, there were some people going into this season, John, and maybe myself included, that I, I think if I, I coined it as the ifs, if the ifs fall in place, Cincinnati could be sniffing a wild card and you know you've got a team like Pittsburgh who's gone through all kinds of stuff they're still in the playoff picture with with a week remaining and the, the division aside from at least initially the division looked a little bit weak then Baltimore started pulling away from everybody Lamar Jackson became Lamar Jackson um, but I mean this it seemed as if this team under a new head coach they were the players were saying the right things. It, it just seemed like this was the necessary move with the coaching staff change, and he would get, uh, he being Zach Taylor would get this, the the best out of the team. And uh, he's had to overcome a lot, and unfortunately, the inexperience has caught up with him. And now here we sit, where he is either going to tie or break the record for the worst record in franchise history. People are celebrating because now this means the Bengals have the top pick with a possibility of getting a quarterback, but with it comes kind of bearing through a miserable season. I, I think the way to look at this is with, with a glass half full kind of situation, because like at the end of the day, if you're the worst record in the NFL, you're, it, you, you may not be the worst team, but you're among the worst teams. You're in a shoddy right. company. Essentially you can't escape that reality. However, you know, this team has dealt with injuries throughout this year, just like they have the past two. That's not really a new excuse, but unfortunately, just, they just can't seem to get fully healthy like they did a couple of years ago. And that's still something that, that that needs to turn right for them. That's still something that they need to be lucky about. But they were 0-8 in one-score games so far this season. They couldn't have another one-score loss against Cleveland this week. But they are, a, a, again, a candidate to regress positively towards next season because more times than not, that, that luck usually turns around. And again, they, they dealt with injuries, and this was just a roster that had been propped up to the best of its ability by an experienced coaching staff by from under Marvin Lewis. And when you basically have no roster turnover, but a bunch of coach turnover, leading a bunch of inexperienced guys, you're going to end up probably with a, with a substandard result if you're not fully healthy. So I think, I, I, I don't know, like th this doesn't to me seem like the absolute worst team in the NFL by far. I, I think you can make an argument that there are a few other teams that have worse cases, at least going forward. So I, I think with the pieces that they have now, the the, the amount of youth on, on the roster in general and just the, the, the promising assets that they still have on both sides of the ball, I think you can make the case that this isn't the, the, the traditional 1-14 type team. It's, it's more not necessarily bad luck, but just bad circumstances that all kind of pile together simultaneously. And when you factor in all that, having the number one pick is, doesn't seem that bad because 
while a quarterback isn't going to magically turn everything around, it is the the one asset that can mask the issues that you do have. And we we might never see another complete team like that 2015 team, but if certain pieces stay healthy and you get more experience from the coaching staff and then you have a quarterback that you can lean on, then you start to see some of these close losses turn into close wins and then your season starts to point in the right direction. So having the number one overall pick is good in a sense for it forces a team like the Bengals to make the only choice that there is. And that is to take a quarterback that is to take the best quarterback in the draft and to propel your team into the future in the fastest way possible. But it's not always good because again, you're you're, like you said, this is going to be at at least tied for the worst record in franchise history. It potentially damages the message that Zach Taylor and his staff has tried to establish in this locker room, tried to establish the culture and that it takes a step back, but it's all about, now being forced to make the decisions that you you have to make in order to progress. And that's getting the quarterback and trying to make some more aggressive moves for agency because you can't put it all in the quarterback. You, you take the quarterback because you have to, but you can't put all of the improvement on the shoulders of him. You have to, again, supplant or compensate his talents with surrounding talent in itself. And you're going to have uh, some, some money left over from getting rid of Dalton to help do that. So this puts them in position to make the necessary moves. And if they were if they had to be forced to be in this position, then then so be it. But I think it's more of a positive because of the way that they got here and the way that they can get, can get out of it now because they basically have no choice. Right. So I, I was thinking recently, I, I think I mentioned this when we took the air maybe a week or so ago, John, that I saw, you know, I saw a lot of parallels with Marvin Lewis's first year coming into 2003 and what's, going to occur in 2020 and it's not just the number one overall pick obviously taylor's entering his second season marvin lewis was entering his first season but you know the Bengals in that 03 draft were aside from lewis's own coaching prowess and they made some savvy free agency moves that uh, that offseason i mean they still lost to keo spikes Corey dillon basically kind of quit on the team a little bit and lost his job to rudy johnson that year um, you know, it, there, there were some, you know, I, I look at, you know, they, they signed a linebacker, Kevin Hardy, they signed Tory James, the cornerback, um, a couple of nice moves there, but basically what really immediately resurrected the team was that draft. And coincidentally, the quarterback they took number one overall didn't play a single snap the entire year in 2003, Carson Palmer sat the entire year. So if you look here, it's not just, you know, the two and 14 season that, you know, all of a sudden we've got this eight and eight year in Marvin Lewis's first year. If you look back, it was a culmination of a couple of, of bad years that led to high draft picks and that now we're kind of seeing a little bit of a similarity. Now, obviously 99 was the year they took Achilles Smith. So, you know, two quarterbacks in the span of, uh, you know, five drafts, that that's not what's occurring here. But when you look at 2000, Peter Warwick, when you look at uh, 2001, I believe that was was that was Justin Smith, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then 2002, um, gosh, I'm I'm slipping here. 2002 was uh, Levi Jones, I think. Yes. So, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got these guys, and and you looked at, when the team wasn't playing well, you've got a Peter Warwick, a guy who was one of the most ex- exciting players in college football. The first couple of years, and granted, he never materialized too much with the Bengals, but all of a sudden Marvin Lewis gets here. 
he finds a nice niche and has a couple of productive years for the Bengals. Justin Smith was already kind of productive for the team at, you know, early on. Um, but, you know, he comes in and ends up being still a linchpin for the defense and obviously gets more, uh, gets, is improved and gets more accolades when Marvin Lewis arrives. And then Levi Jones, who was thought of as a gigantic reach in 2002, ends up becoming a Pro Bowl alternate under Marvin Lewis. And then, of course, you get Carson Palmer with that pick. So all of a sudden, what I'm what I'm kind of getting at here, John, is, you know, these the we look at these picks now. These past couple of years, the Billy Prices, who's been in and out of the lineup this year, John Ross, who you know has kind of had a little bit of a similar career arc to Peter Warwick. Um, you know, you, you see these picks that have been disappointments these past couple of years, and now all of a sudden it's like, well. You've got a coach entering his second season. You have an opportunity to take a quarterback at number one overall. Maybe all of a sudden some of these picks, particularly the disappointing ones on offense, may start to kind of put some things together based on new quarterback, coach gaining more experience, and all of a sudden this team starts to hit a new stride. I don't know if I'm reaching, but I'm seeing a lot of parallels to what occurred in the pre-Marvin era. Now I'll just say it, you are reaching when you when you assume that Billy Price and a player of that caliber can you know possibly improve upon what he is now, but that's kind of beside the point. I think the point that that, that you're making is the fact that they were they were starting to accumulate talent before Palmer got there, and then when Palmer got there, that was a really boom of of a roster turnover, thanks to mostly in part by by Marvin Lewis, and you know that was Lewis's first year, but he had a full off season to really put together that team. And that was something that Taylor really didn't have. And that was something we've talked about in right, the past right. about how Taylor, you know, rushed to put together his coaching staff. They only had like a week or two with the full coaching staff to evaluate the roster and therefore unfortunately made some, some not so good free agent decisions. So when, when they draft, when they drafted Palmer, they, they added like, like you said, a, a, a bunch of quality talents that year specifically in free agency and the draft. And they have a chance to do that with, with potentially selecting Joe Burrow a, after that in the draft and before that in free agency and that's kind of what needs to happen. Like, like you look at this team right now, and we talk about this every year. You know that they have pieces on both sides of the ball. If they stay healthy, they could do something. Well, now if you have a quarterback and you have a system that you have established under your feet, you have some some type of coaching continuity, and you have the quarterback that that you selected to kind of run that system. Now, if if some of those pieces don't stay healthy, you you're kind of more confident in those pieces kind of gelling with a system that has some type of continuity in it under a quarterback that can take it to the direction that they want. Because you, you look at all the position groups, you have talent running back, you have talent at receiver, you have at least four, you know, if not quality, but at least promising offensive linemen and Jonah Williams, Michael Jordan, Trey Hopkins, and John Miller. Bobby Hart is still Bobby Hart, but still, that offense is still kind of decent to put around a rookie quarterback. And then with this defense kind of coming together in the second half, in the second half of the season, you still have a quality front four. You still have... Jermaine Pratt looking promising, Nick Vigil potentially playing on a one-year deal next year, and you have quality pieces in the secondary. So this, this team, you know, has had obviously rough spots this season. There's no doubt that they looked so bad at, at certain parts this year, especially against good teams, and that was a sign that they were just not even close. But at the at the top level of the roster, there is definitely talent, and there's definitely pieces that you can build around a rookie quarterback where you can ha- you can have confidence and putting him in the, in this situation like you had confidence uh, starting Palmer in 2004 after right. one year of Kidna. And then, then that team went eight and eight. And then, then they went on 2005 looking like Super Bowl contenders. So the possibility, the parallels of a quick turnaround, like in the first couple years of Marvin Lewis is definitely valid because 
while that team was obviously very bad in 2002, they ended up getting Palmer. They did have the pieces and they did have the potential to turn around quickly, but they did have to make the moves and they were forced to, to make those moves. They were forced to take the, the Heisman winning quarterback that was staring them in the face. They were forced to take these, these, these top prospects in the top of the, of the early rounds of the draft. They were forced to make some pressing moves in free agency that previously they, they, they weren't really accustomed to. They could be in the same situation this year where they're forced to sign, you know, two or three starters in free agency and, you know, make sure you get quality immediate impact players in the draft. So this is, they're now in a, in a position where they may not have a choice in the matter of how they want to do this, because right now Zach Taylor's on the clock and he may be coming back for 2020, but he needs to put results and he's now in the best position to do so. Yeah. Ironically, just kind of a little side fun side note that a lot of people forget. Ironically, Cincinnati, when they were looking at Palmer, do you know who it was? They were, they were supposedly debating between taking at number one overall between Palmer and, was it was it Byron Leftwich? No, it was Ty- Terrence Newman. The uh, oh Jesus, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were. They, I remember that they were. They were thinking about taking Terrence Newman. They were really high on him, and uh, you know, obviously Newman had a a good career and uh, ended up with the Bengals, which was like the irony of all ironies. But uh, just kind of funny how that whole thing worked out. But uh, you know, inevitably, we're going long on this segment because this is kind of the you know, a little bit of the talk of the town, I guess, with the Bengals. Inevitably, as is evidenced in our live chat, we have the Dalton is trash. We have (laughs) this team is not far off. They just need to draft offensive linemen. We have the Chase Young crowd, and then we have Burrow, Burrow, Burrow. Uh, You know, here's here's my thing. I, I... I'm old enough to remember the the whole in that Achilles Smith draft that we talked about. I'm I'm old enough to remember when Mike Ditka offered an entire draft to the Cincinnati Bengals and they turned it down and grabbed Achilles Smith, um, and that crippled the franchise really for for a handful of years. There, this is a different time. You know, it's it's now 21 years later, and you know the the rookie wage scale and all of that doesn't allow the team to get absolutely handicapped the way it does, but. I mean, to me, unless there's something that absolutely just is a franchise-changing type of trade where you just absolutely cannot say no, you have to get your quarterback. And and I was I was thinking about this. You know, I, I like I love the Justin Herbert tools. I love the intangibles and, and the deep ball and and certain things of Tua. But to me, and granted, we have the playoff weekend coming up here, so things can change in just a few short days. But to me, this team needs, at the most important position, they need a guy who comes and shows up and plays well in the biggest games. If you heard Anthony Munoz, who was speaking to Wingo and Golick on ESPN Radio, he said he really likes Chase Young, but they need Burrow, and it's because Burrow has a tendency to show up in big games. And I feel the same way. You look at the most important game on LSU schedule to date against Alabama, Four touchdowns. I don't think he threw an interception, right? I mean, and that it, they got the win. And it's game after game in these important games, these important SEC games, he is showing up this year. It gives me pause that it's only been one year, but this team needs a clutch performer at the most important position on the team. And that's what's selling me on Burrow. I don't I don't know that, that you can replace that with, a boatload of, of picks, even high picks going forward. This is like the trouble when you're covering the Bengals, because logically 
the, a scenario where you get a King's ransom for the number one overall pick and you have a roster that definitely needs to be, you know, turned over to the, to the absolute 10th degree, you, you would think that that's a great strategy to, to make. And you would be much more confident in doing so with a team that you, you trust hitting on all those picks now. And, 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 and that's where, that's where the whole confidence comes from. Like, like, you know, if the Eagles or, or another team, like the Eagles, the Ravens, or the Saints, if they did this, you would have confidence that they're gonna they're gonna make the most of that opportunity. And if they were in a position like we, like the Bengals are in, then they could see an immediate turnaround as well because they're gonna they're, you have confidence in them hitting on those picks because their track record is pretty good. The Bengals is just not the case for that. Like it, it makes sense why you would consider something like like that, but the only way for them to really progress into the place that they haven't been before is to get that single asset that is more important than any other asset on the team. Like they are in a position to want to build back up a roster and to make it at least competitive again, but it's not going to matter if they don't have that one solution at the most important position. And if you're another team who can maybe sign a quarterback in free agency or or the next year trade up for a quarterback in the first round, if you don't pick a quarterback this year, then that tradeback scenario has a lot more validity. It has a lot more weight. It makes sense in a vacuum. It's just when you when you isolate it towards this team and their specific situation and their tendencies and their honestly fear of progress and change and sticking in their ways. This is quoting the Mandalorian. This is the way. This is the only way. This is the only way that they can, can that they should consider getting out of this rut of purgatory that they live in. And if they decide to deviate from that, they're risking staying in this rut of purgatory for the next five to 10 years because they're passing on their one chance to really get out of this with the one player that can get them out of this. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I th- thanks to Rob Duncan in the live chat saying, uh, Burrow versus Alabama, 31 of 39, three touchdowns, zero interceptions, close to 400 yards. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of a little bit of my point there. I mean, he's, he's not, I mean, if you look here, Auburn, not a not a fantastic game, but still 76% completion percentage, 321 yards, a touchdown, and an interception. The big game against Alabama, which is arguably the most important on the schedule. Mississippi, he did have the two interceptions, which was uncharacteristic, but five touchdowns and almost 500 yards. Uh, still look, at, look at those completion percentages, man. Yeah. Like, I, I like, it's not the most indicative measurement of accuracy, but when it doesn't sniff below 70 for an entire season, it's ridiculous. remarkable. It's, it's truly just insane. It's ridiculous. And, and the other thing with it, John, is it's not, it, it's not 73% and throwing 220 yards, right? It's, it's, it's 73, seven, it's 78% on the year and throwing for, you know, 350, 325. I mean, it's high volume. Uh, and then, of course, you look at the Georgia game here, which was a very important game. Four touchdowns, zero interceptions. To me, that's that's kind of the selling point for me. This team needs the clutch gene. And, uh, you know, even though he may not have the wow arm or what have you, um, you know, that to me is, is what he provides, the clutch gene. And I think this team needs that. Quickly, before we move on, there was one comment uh, from James Moore Jr. kind of saying, you know, what if – what if Burrow pulls an Eli Manning to San Diego type of thing? I don't see that happening um, because Burrow's from Ohio. And I, I just think that would be a bad look. I don't think that kid 
to be honest, I think his rise, I, I don't want to speak for him, but he's had a meteoric rise to stardom already. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't see that happening. I don't see him saying thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to sit out and wait. Um, that's just my take. No matter how big of a shambles the Bengals may be and how bad of an image ownership may have, I, I just, I don't see that happening. Maybe I'm being jaded and overly optimistic, John, but. Nah, nah, when we had B- Billy Gomelia from In the Valley Shook about a week ago uh, from the um, LSU Espionage said, I, I, we asked him about this. We pressed him about, you know, the character of Burrow and, and the mentality and the mindset that he has as a competitor. And he basically, he, he confirmed our beliefs that he's not going to be the guy that pulls in. He's not going to be the guy with an agenda of his own to put himself in the whatever best possible situation he can. If he hears his name called, he's going to go out there. And he's going to compete. Like he, he wanted to compete at Ohio state. And then he wanted to compete at LSU because that was the only place that he could. But now, he has the chance to live up to this hype. And I, I think it goes beyond just the Ohio status because I think we, we might be assuming that he's a Bengals fan growing up, but we don't actually know that. You know, he, he's honestly closer to Steelers country in Southeast Ohio than the Bengals country, unfortunately. But I guess that's something that we're going to have to we're gonna have to learn about in the coming months. But I don't I just don't think he's going to be that type of guy. And I think that speaks towards the type of person and, and the character that he is. And it's not that unique for, for most quarterbacks because, again, this is – this John Elway, Eli Manning situation has only happened twice in like 40 years. So to assume it's going to happen to somebody who has presented himself in the way that Joe Burrow has, I think is a little outlandish and honestly a little bit foolish. But I don't, I don't know if the Ohio connection has anything to do with it, but I just think he's just the type of person that we shouldn't expect that to happen. Yeah, I just – I don't see it. Um, and I think uh, – Usually when that stuff happens, there's a long trail of smoke that leads to the fire. It's a long burn where you hear it for a while. And I think if I remember correctly, granted, it was now 15, 16 years ago when it happened with Eli Manning. Um, you know, I, I think his that was kind of a rumbling over the, you know, the past month or whatever leading up to the draft. So I think I think the Bengals would would be aware of the situation. And when players have done that in the past, I think it's been pretty well known. John Elway, I think Bo Jackson, others, um, you know, it it was well known that they were not going to play and it was well known pretty early on in the process. So um, I think if that comes to pass, which I don't think it will, it'll be known pretty early. This is the orange and black insider Bengals podcast. We've been talking about the Bengals loss to the dolphins, which was actually a win of sorts as the Bengals grab the number one overall pick in the 2020 draft and what they may do with that pick in a few short months. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza. You can get this show on any number of audio podcast platforms as well as our YouTube channel. Subscribe and get all of the stuff that we have, whether it's our show, our listener questions, or our post-game reactions, breaking news episodes that we do, or the other podcasts that are on our channel the Cincy Jungle podcast channel, that is, Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk, as well as Orange is the New Black with Zim Huday and Ace Boogie. So check out all that stuff. And uh, get all of your news, opinions, analysis at cincyjungle.com. Thanks for the support. So we got one week left of 2019, the football schedule, end of the calendar year. One week left of the year, one week left of the decade. So it's time to finish our all 2010s Bengals decade team last week. We both did our offensive selections. For the most part, there was a clear consensus for the important positions. This week, I think we're going to have some differences specifically towards the back seven. So what we're going to do, Anthony, we're going to go We're going to go a lot of groups of two here. We're going to go two edge defenders, two interior defensive linemen, 
two linebackers, two cornerbacks, two safeties, and a flex. He could be anywhere on the field. It's, we're going a modern six-man box defense, you know, whatever you want for that flex, but we're going to do 11 defenders, and we're going to do uh, a kicker, punter, Long snapper and return man for our special teams because we can't forget those guys. Should so, we? Should we do? Do you want to do special teams for? Or how, how are you wanting to do this first? What do you? Yeah, we'll do special teams last. We'll do. We'll, we'll okay. start. In the, we'll start in the front four. So let's go. Uh, give me two edge guys off the bat. Uh, well, Dunlap, for sure. Obviously. Um, and you know I'm gonna have to think about it. Uh. Is is Dunlap your one of yours? I would I would assume Dunlap is one of mine. Yes, uh, I, I'll go Michael Johnson. Okay, um, that I mean, it, it was either it was either him or the guy I picked, and I think I'm going to use the same logic that I did last week in picking Joe Mixon over Giovanni Bernard. Mixon obviously only having a couple seasons here, but the more talented guy, the guy that you want to build around, and that's why. I'm going to go Carl Lawson because hmm. aside from, you know, the, the injuries aside uh, that's unfortunately ham- hampered his career, he's uh, next to Dunlap, their second best edge rusher on the team now. And I think of the past 10 years, I think as a fourth round pick, as a guy who was as talented as he was coming out of Auburn, the, the ability to, you know, generate production as quickly as he did coming into the NFL on a, as a rotational guy first, who was only a pass rushing specialist, but to take all of that advanced technique as a pass rusher and that brute upper arm strength and that just whipping out a hump move in his third career game against the Packers nonetheless and just sacking Aaron Rodgers twice, that was really just a, a really coming alive of this guy is legit. He is for sure worth the hype of a fourth-round pick who should have been drafted higher. And in 2018, when he was hurt for half the year, he only had, I think, like one sack during, during the first eight games, but he was still leading the – like in the top two in, in terms of, you know, pressure rate for the team and still up there in the NFL. And this year, you know, you, you, you would think that there would be some type of slowdown because he's coming back from a torn ACL. But as soon as he hit the field in 2019, he was right back where he started. And the, and the, the sacks really came on towards the later part of this year, but the pressures were consistently there. So every time he's been on the field, he's been and not an elite pass rusher, but definitely something that they definitely lacked across from Dunlap. And since Michael Johnson really went downhill, so – Johnson's more of the longevity guy, the more all-around guy, but in terms of the their second best edge guy, I think it has to be Lawson. Yeah, and you know, just to, before we move on, I mean, I, Lawson is a talented guy. I, I guess, you know, and he he is set to break a, uh, a single season career best for quarterback hits. Uh, you know, I think he had twenty one as his, as a rookie when he had the eight and a half sacks. And then he, I think he's at 18. So a few more this week, and he could he could break it. And that's pretty impressive for a rotational guy. Pretty ro- you know impressive number. I know the pressure rate is very high. Unfortunately, just the sack number hasn't hit. I guess the thing also with Johnson for me, it's not just the longevity. I mean, he did other things. I mean, granted, he had a couple of real big years of sack totals, but he was in those really good Mike Zimmer defenses, he was very good at setting the edge and and playing the run. I know that's not ideal out of a defensive end, but you need that. And that's what made the Bengals defense part of what made the Bengals defense very formidable. And he also was a guy like Dunlap who, because of his immense height and wingspan knocked down an insane amount of passes. And that 
is a stat that often goes overlooked between those two guys because those are stats that often stall out drives. But I don't, I don't think you can really go wrong either way. Um, I think Johnson maybe more readily comes to mind for people, but Lawson, you know, could be on a, a pretty high career trajectory. Yeah. When Michael Johnson was good, he was definitely not good. So let's go inside now Two, like, I guess we, we know one interior defender. So aside from from Gino, who's, who's the guy next to him? (sighs) Uh, You know, part of me really wants to go to Montepico. Um, you know, I, come on, come on. I, you know who I think I'm going to go with? Uh, well, I guess I'll go Pico. I, I'm, I'm tempted to go Pat Sims. I'm really tempted to go Pat wow. Sims. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I always really liked Pat Sims. I thought he was a very under underrated player for this team. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll go. I'll go to Mata Pico. Uh, I was going to go with him too, just because. Again, very similar to Johnson, where you know, in in today's NFL, he's not the he's not the guy you want as a three down player. But when he was good, he was one of the best. I think one of the most unheralded players on this team. Definitely a locker room leader, someone that the fans captivated towards. But he just did his job. And when Gino was really coming along, he he was also still playing at a high level. He played here a long time. One of their better fourth round picks of the Marvin Lewis era with an era filled with great fourth round picks so kudos to him great career but yeah he, he I, might get a ring this year man wait who, who's he playing for now he's with baltimore now so he might oh get a God, ring this year. i forgot about that yeah yeah Jesus. yeah well, well, wasn't he with the broncos in 20 20- no he was still with the Bengals then last year he was with the broncos right and then, uh this year the ravens picked him up mid-season so he's playing for him <laughs> all right so now we're in a little dicier territory we're gonna go I, I honestly want to, I'm not sure there are two linebackers that are worthy of being on an all decade team, but I think we, we know one and his name is Montez perfect. Yep. And the second guy, I, I, I debated this a lot in my head and I ended up with Vincent Ray and mm. it, it, it's very, it, it, honestly, it, it's similar to Pat Sims to me because it's someone, so guy, a guy that when he was at his best, he would come in, in you know situational spots, whether it be an injury or whether it be in sub packages, and he would just out of nowhere have this like really productive game. I, I remember I think it was the 2013 game in, in, that went to overtime against Baltimore. He had like 15 tackles, and there were like 10 of them were stops, and that he, he might have had like a turnover too in that game. He was just out of nowhere capable of these surprising performances. And obviously, towards the later part of his career, he was completely ineffective. Whenever he came onto the field, he was a complete liability because he could barely move his hips at that point. He ran like a five second 40. He was never the greatest athlete, but at the peak of his athleticism, when he was put in good situations, when he did have, you know, guys like Pecco in front of him to, to take on blocks, he was a guy that just kind of got the job done and not a flashy way. And that's really just the, that's just the, the that's how their linebackers were. Like it, it, at, at a certain point at Vincent Ray was your most productive linebacker for a certain stretch of games. That's the reality. That's just the nature of, of how bad your linebackers were. So at the very least, he brought some sense of stability as as a reserve, as a special teamer, but a guy who could just make a couple plays here and there. And honestly, there's like there's Raymond Luga as well. And maybe like again, like I'm just struggling grasping the straws of, of picturing a competition between anybody else besides Vinny But I think he's the guy that has just the, the cleanest case out of all the bad cases. 
Right. And by the way, there are some people in the live chat saying, John and Anthony, a couple of youngins. What about Spikes and Simmons? Guys, this is an all-decade team, 2010 through 2019. Um, so we, we're not we're not going that route. We're, we're doing the current decade that is now being being passed on. Obviously, we could go all the way back and talk about Bill Berge, and we could talk about all these guys if we wanted to do it. This is an all-decade team for 2010 through 2019 because this decade is ending. So uh, that's that's just for a little additional clarification for folks. And I guess it's my pick for the other linebacker. I'm going to go Maluga. Uh, I guess another kind of just – you know, one of those uh, lifetime achievement awards, I guess. You know, in a lot of respects, uh, when the Bengals drafted him, I was especially where they drafted him in the second round. I was mm-hmm. ecstatic because I Same. saw a lot. I saw a lot of him at USC. I saw a guy who was physical. He made a lot of game-changing plays for the Trojans' defense when he was in college. And I just saw a guy that was going to come in and bring that Steelers-esque type of swagger to the Bengals' defense. He flashed it every once in a while, but I think what ultimately happened at the NFL level is that it became apparent that he was a bit limited in what he could do at the NFL level, and he was masked a little bit by Brian Cushing, Keith Rivers, Clay Matthews, those guys on the Trojans defense that were, that were flanking him. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, a good career or a pretty good career. Um, I expected multiple pro bowls when the Bengals drafted him. I just, I thought that that was just going to be their guy. Um, and he was their guy. He was on the team for a long time, but you know, made a couple of wow plays, but never really was what he looked like in college. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of a shame, but still a, a solid player who was a contributor on a number of great Mike Zimmer defenses. It really seemed like he was like Marvin's guy, like <laughs> Marvin's like, you know, answered it to like his next Ray Lewis. And unfortunately, I think he just kind of came into the league a little bit late. And, it, and had he played, you know, more than the early 2000s, I think his career would have been better. And unfortunately, just they tried to make him into a, a, a pure Mike, Mike linebacker. And unfortunately, just wasn't the fit. So. Yeah, the potential was there, but it was just not the greatest fit. But still, decent player at times. But yeah, before we just move on real quick, um, and and I hate to speculate and I hate to do this, but Mike Holbrook, who is talking to us in the live Facebook chat, says, "Who was the linebacker who was really good but had a huge problem with alcohol?" Unfortunately, I think that was the rap. Well, there was Thurman Odell Thurman who had yeah. a problem with drugs and other stuff, but I think there was kind of some rumblings with. Maluga having some problems with with alcohol and, and whatnot. And unfortunately, that's um, you know uh, I I don't know the specifics, but those that was kind of always a little bit of a rumor um, with him. But still, a good career with the Bengals. Yeah. So at the peak of the Mike Zimmer defense was their town of quarterback, I think. And obviously, the pass rush was there, but they had some lockdown guys, and maybe the most underrated one of the most underrated defenders from this decade was leon hall and i think he definitely makes a spot yeah. on both of our list at cornerback the other cornerback position is interesting because there, there were some there were some quality stopgap guys with terrence newman and nate clemens who in and, and adam jones who got the job done for a certain amount of years but again i'm 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 deviating more towards just pure talent and who produced at, at the minimum of, of two years of solid production 
And I think I have to put William Jackson up here because that, that first season that he had in 2017, you know, pro, pro football focus listed as a historic season where he allowed a pass rating under 40, which, you know, pass rating is whatever, but it's still, he was locked down that year in, in his first year of playing a position that's really tough to translate from, you know, college to pros. And he had a slow start in 2018, but he really started picking it back up in 20 and in, in the end of, of last season. And then he, again, he has another solid to, you know, solid steady year this year. So the ball production ha- just hasn't really been there. And I, I think it's a testament to more so of, of the entire defense in, in general. But I think in terms of what we should have expected William Jackson to be coming out of Houston, the type of cornerback that he was, I think he has developed into that. And it's never going to be maybe a lockdown number one guy, a guy that can take away a, a primary option entirely, but a solid, talented cornerback with with tools, with athleticism. I, I, I think he deserves a spot on this list. So you're going uh, Leon Hall and uh, William Jackson. William Jackson. Okay. Uh, I am going to go a little bit of a, a different route. Um, you know, and he only spent three seasons with the team. Unfortunately, we're, we're in kind of a quandary here, John, because, you know, you, you, you think about Jonathan Joseph, but he was kind of, you know, basically gone by the time this decade started. Um, You know, you look at Hall. Hall was a a solid player, but really was on the tail end of his career towards, you know, the beginning, middle of this decade. I I like the William Jackson take. Part of me really likes Drake Kirkpatrick for this designation. I'm tempted to go Terrence Newman, though. Wow. Um, yeah, I really am, and I, I'll tell you why. Because, uh, and Newman frustrated at times, but five interceptions over the course of, of three years, not terrible. Uh, 36 passes defensed over the course of three, season, three seasons. Um, you know, he had the big, if you remember, he was the guy who had, I think, the big fumble recovery to win, to beat the Packers uh, mm-hmm. in 20, I think it was 2015. Um, you know, there are, or maybe that was 2013. Um, yeah, there, yeah, so there, there were a number of different kind of moments with him that, you know, you you think about, well, you know, he actually made some plays for this team. And I think... The big thing for me was the steadiness he brought. He he was he was decent. He didn't allow the a ton of big plays, and he was a steady presence when the Bengals invested in Drake Kirkpatrick, and they couldn't rely on him right away because of injuries, because of his own inconsistency. They needed a veteran guy, and you go, oh boy, you, but Terrence Newman, another has been who comes in, another top pick that the Bengals like to to you know get on the cheap and and try and get a, a year or two on a rental deal. The guy came in, he played all right. And he played, he played, it was only three seasons, but those were three of the top defenses the Bengals had in, in really ever under Mike Zimmer. And he was a guy that Mike Zimmer wanted for his system. So to me, he wasn't the most talented guy. He's not better as a corner, or at least when he was with the Bengals. He is not a better player than William Jackson, probably not a better player than Drake or Patrick has been at certain points in his Bengals career. But the steadiness and giving them what they needed for the system they ran and when they ran it, I, I think I'm going to go with Newman there. 
And, you know, they, they got Newman when he was in his uh, early to mid thirties and he was still as fast as he was when he first, that, like, that's like, that's the transcendent athleticism that made him that high of a pick in, in 2003. And, you know, the, of all the, of all the first round quarterbacks that take a flyer on 10 years of your career, Newman was definitely a solid one. So let's, let's transition now to safeties. Um, again, there's some slight deliberation with me here and I had to actually, um, it was my toughest decision because I, I definitely wanted Reggie Nelson as one of them just for that uh, in, unheralded four-year stretch from 2012 to 2015 where I think he had at least like 20 receptions. Like 20 receptions for a Bengals secondary member in four years is now nowadays really unheard of because it's a miracle if they just get two interceptions in four years. But uh, just a ball magnet, a ball hawk, and a guy that could also lay the wood uh, at that free safety spot. My and at the height of that, in the Zimmer scheme was obviously a cover two base. So you had two deep safeties patrolling both halves of the field. So you had Reggie Nelson's one free safety. And the other free safety was George Aloka for most of that. And I think I'm going to go with him over a couple other guys. Because Aloka was also another underrated guy who I think a lot of people pigeonholed as more of a strong safety box guy. But he actually played most of his career in that deep, you know, cover two shell opposite of Nelson. He also had a couple uh, a couple of seasons where he had a handful of interceptions. So he ended up finding the ball a lot as well, but also being 6'4", 220, 230, when, and having that straight line speed and having that explosion, it was an asset that was important for that defense to function the way that it did to allow Nelson to do what he did. But also, Aloka could cover his own ground and could make some plays on his own. And once Nelson left, I think they expected Aloka to be more than, than who he was. And unfortunately, that's why it didn't really work out and why they took Jesse Bates, who was also under consideration for this, but I think pairing Nelson and Aloka again in this iteration of a team would 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 suffice for me personally. Yeah, I mean it's hard to hard to disagree there. I, I think Sean Williams may be in the discussion, but he's taken a little bit of a downturn this year. Um, Jesse Bates is in the in the discussion. I'd like to see another year of him, a little more steadiness from him. Um, to, to make him a, a shoe-in pick there. Also, I think, if I, if I read this correctly, both Williams and Bates are among the top leaders in missed tackles this year, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is not a good sign. Granted, I mean, your safeties aren't necessarily your best tacklers on the team, but uh, you know when they led the team in tackles last year, you kind of hope that, you know, that that's a, unfortunately it's, it's one of those signs of regression we've talked about with those guys. Bates has really picked it up over the past couple of weeks though. He has yeah. played, he has played a lot better and it's not just the interceptions. He has, he has been in position more often than not. So, um, but yeah, I think Iloka and, and Nelson is where you have to go on this one. All right. So for my flex, I, I consider it a pass rusher, but because I was so torn at safety, I had to put a third safety for my flex, and that is Sean Williams. And like you said, the inconsistencies are definitely there. There's just been times over the past couple of years where you're thinking this guy's almost playing himself out of a starting position because he's either missing tackles or just getting out of uh, getting out of position in general. But there's just been mo- like there's just been moments, even when the Bengals have been bad, that Williams just ends up making plays, and it's very rare in, in, in this you know version of the Bengals defense for playmakers to really step up especially when, you know, you're giving up 25, 30 points a game. But there have just been moments in, in Williams' career where he's just made jaw-dropping plays, in my opinion. And the the versatility, just like Iloka and just like Nelson, to to be a force in the box, but to also hold your ground in, in a cover two shell, to 
you know, that, that, that game against the Ravens he had in 2018, I think this comes to mind is, is just something that they desperately needed on that on that unit where he had that interception against Flack when he had that strip sack that really sealed the game away. It's just been moments like that that really have established him as a leader. And just as just a story in general, like that 2013 draft, I loved Bakari Rambo coming out of Georgia, that, that mm-hmm. safety. And also they picked Sean Williams like, no, I wanted the other guy. He was I wanted the guy that got out a lot of receptions, but obviously – Williams has ended up being the much more productive player. He's obviously lasted a lot longer, but then working up to a second contract in the 2016 offseason, working himself into being a solid starter. And I know this season hasn't been the best for him, but I think his overall work has spoken for himself and his versatility, I think, gives him a good spot at the select spot. So I, I've gone back and forth a little bit. Um you know, in terms of do we want to do this truly schematically? Do you want to just throw in a guy that, you know, it's just an extra player who was just a good player and you want to, you know, you want to add him in there. I, you know, there, I, I like, I like the idea of Lawson. I even like a little bit the idea of Sam Hubbard. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's had a, a, you know, 13 sacks in two seasons now. That's, that's not too terrible. Um, you know, he's a guy in there. Uh, we, Williams for me, I Darquez Denard was a guy I thought about for a, for a flex just because of actually schematically the slot guy, the guy that can, you know, he's physical, he's, he's quick enough. And he, you know, you've seen him on tight ends, you've seen him on big receivers, but you know, three interceptions in six years played now, that's not really doing it for me. I'm going to go with the true kind of Rover guy. I'm going to go with Bates. I'm going to go with Bates. And I, I, I like the idea of, you know, a guy, I, I think they need to, free him up a little bit. And I, I think you've seen that maybe in these past couple of weeks. I, I think, you know, when he's, he's been tasked with overcompensating for some other issues or was tasked with overcompensating with some other issues beginning of the year, perhaps the same way Williams has in terms of what the linebackers were or weren't doing and, and, you know, needing to just kind of be more responsible. And, uh, you know, I think, I think you've seen some changes over these past couple of weeks and that's where you've seen the uptick in performance by him. So uh, I think just schematically and just kind of having a fun flex player on defense, a guy who can create the big play, I'll go with Bates. Um, You know, a lot of guys, like I mentioned, were in that discussion for me though. Not going to argue with that, with that pick there. So Uh, uh, we've got some solid defenses, I think. So so now we're going to run through special teams because I think, or we're not going to have so much deliberation here. Kicker, I'm I'm just going to go with Nugent on the fact that he's just been more clutch over Randy Bullock. Who well, we didn't even talk about the fact that Bullock had a 57 yarder this week right. after missing two 52 yarders that were called back. So right. I, I guess honorable mention to Bullock for that one special moment. But punter Kevin Huber, long snapper Clark Harris, kick returner because I didn't have him in my defense. I'm going to go Adam Jones. And yeah. just the just the just the fact that they were so they were so committed to Brandon Tate for some god awful reason that whenever Jones came in there, you just like knew it was going to be something much better than what Tate could have done. And like like one every one of every three of his returns would go for like some fifty yard game or a touchdown. He was just so good and so unfortunately underutilized because I think they valued his they obviously valued his play on defense and they wanted to reserve him there, but he would provide such a spark. It was such a stark contrast to what Brandon Tate did. So he gets the return or not. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's funny. You, you mentioned Adam Jones. I'm going, Oh man, maybe I should have found a place for him on defense. Um, uh, yeah. He's got to be the return guy. He's got to be the return yeah. guy. And uh, you know, he deserves a place, even though he's had <laughs> twists and turns in his career. 
Um, you know, he deserves a place on this all decade team for sure. And I think, I think returner is apropos, even though he had limited chances, uh, he was explosive uh, as yeah. a returner. So uh, never once fair catch, fair caught. Yeah. I, I may, uh, yeah, I know. I may deviate a little bit. I may, I may go Bullock uh, for the really? first spot. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of just like, well, did how many big kicks kicks did Nugent really make? I mean, he doinked one in against the the Seahawks in 2015, I guess. Um, I don't know. I just I don't because the Bengals didn't really win big playoff games and whatnot. Um, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't know. I just don't remember Look, a ton of big. I, 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 I wanted to put Jake Elliott, but I don't think that would be uh, coinciding with the rules here. So. <laughs> no that would not work uh so i mean yeah I, I you could go either way really but yeah I, obviously clark harris and kevin hubert those are those are gimmies. yeah so that that about does it for our all decade team we're, we're gonna have that posted up on the post later this week but you you want to you, you want to run through your team or you want to move on um Sure. So uh, we had I had Michael Johnson, Carlos Dunlap, Geno Atkins, Demata Pico, Vontez Perfect, Ray Maluga. I actually had Terrence Newman. That mm-hmm. may surprise some people. Terrence Newman out as a corner, and uh, I think we both agreed on Leon Hall. Flex guy was Jesse Bates for me, and then the safeties were Aloka and Nelson. So we disagreed with. I had lost over Johnson. Had Ray over. The other Ray Maluga. I had William Jackson over Terrence Newman, Sean Williams over Jesse Bates, and Nugent over Fat Randy. Okay, and then special teams. We had we both we almost pretty much agreed. Uh, yeah, I, I just had yeah I had the kicker difference. Do you remember your offense? Just to recap it, put a bow in this thing. I had Dalton Mixon, Green, Boyd Jones. Eifert, uh, Whitworth, Bowling, uh, Hopkins, or excuse me, Cook, Zeidler, and Andre Smith. Okay, I think where I, I had most of those same people, I think where I deviated, I went uh, Gresham at tight end, and Eifert is the flex guy. And then I think, did I say Geo at running back? I yeah. Think, I think I had Geo as the running back. Um, and then I think I was pretty much the same everywhere else, right? Uh mm across the line and all of that. Did we do, did we do a full, the, the flex position was a fullback. So we didn't really do that. Um, right. So yeah, that's the all decade team, by the way, guys, guys, I'll tell you again, John branch asking about Odell Thurman all decade, 2010 to 20, 2019. That's what we're not. That's how does we're he, does he even make the all two thousands team. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, 2010 through 2019, it's the all-decade team because the 2010s are coming to a close. Good stuff from John. That, that was his brainchild. It was fun reliving some of those some of those players. And uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear your guys. I think they want to talk about the future. Uh, yeah. We're getting a lot of that. Yeah, we're going to get on to that. Uh, we are going a little longer than expected, but um, we're going to get on to that and then uh, move on out of here. But this is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. You can get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, YouTube, and all of our stuff is on CincyJungle.com. So subscribe to our channels and join us live when you can for all of our episodes. We'd love to have you join us either through Cincy Jungle's Facebook page. So you got to go like Cincy Jungle and get notifications of when we're streaming live or if you subscribe to our youtube channel you can get the notifications as to when our next episodes are as well john 
we've been joined. I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. We have been joined recently, joined recently by some members of the SB Nation Network to help us preview Justin Herbert to Otago Vailoa and Joe Burrow most recently. Uh, before that, you and I gave our takes on a couple of different players. So uh, we are going to continue our 2020 prospect watch. We've done, uh, I we did Michael Pittman. We did the three quarterbacks. I did Michael Pittman, the wide receiver of USC. And gosh, I'm blanking on uh, blanking on my second guy. But hey, Kenneth Murray, the yes, linebacker? That's right. Kenneth Murray, the linebacker. Thank you. And then uh, the three quarterbacks that were done by other folks. I've got another guy on tap. You did Samuel Cosme, the offensive lineman mm-hmm. in Texas. The And then you had a – was it a corner? It was a linebacker for Mississippi State. That's right. Man. That's right. Um, honestly, I'm forgetting his name. This is – He was uh, – <laughs> uh, Junior. Uh, junior. Yeah, yeah, let's call him Junior. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the three quarterbacks. Uh so who do you who do you have on tap this week? Uh, so I wanted to do something to celebrate the college football playoff. Pick, Willie, pick up Willie, Willie Gay Jr. By the way, yes, yes, that was it. That was it. Yeah. So I'll, for this week, college football playoffs, uh, I wanted to do a prospect that not necessarily a consensus first round pick because I think the first round discussion for the Bengals is a little not 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 moot at this point, but it, I, I'm more intrigued now for the guys who could be around the second, third, or fourth round. And maybe a guy that is someone to watch for this weekend who could be on their radar as one of the picks after potentially Joe Burrow. And I'm going to go with A.J. Terrell, the cornerback out of Clemson. Um, in general, cornerbacks out of that scheme don't have a lot of ball production because of how dominant that defensive line is and how hard it is for opposing quarterbacks to really you know, target receivers downfield and, you know, get the full timing of the routes under them. So cornerbacks naturally will have an easier job in that, in that defense, in that scheme, that defense is out of its mind. It's going to give Ohio state some, some definite problems this week, but Terrell in general is a prospect that I think the Bengals are going to be very infatuated with. He's only 21 years old. He's a three-year starter again, in one of the best defenses in the country. And he has, he has the the mold athleticism and phys, physicality wise of, a cornerback that the Bengals could like to target. He's six one, only one hundred ninety pounds. Uh, in high school, in high school, and like the the uh, the opening, which is like the Nike Elite, uh, basically combine test for the top prospects. He ran like a almost a sub four second short shuttle and a four five flat forty. So I would expect that forty to be a little more a little bit more improved. But on tape, at that size, he's just so fluid, and he really just glides on you know go routes, and he's able to stick together on stick with receivers on crossing routes. I think there were a couple of plays last year in the college football playoff where he just sucked to Henry Ruggs, the third, who's maybe the fastest receiver in college football. So the athleticism is definitely not the problem here. Again, he's really young, so he's got a lot of room to grow, but growing is going to be the main part for him because physically at the catch point is where he struggles the most. And while he does have the ability to stick with guys and bump run coverage, it's it's honestly just the ball skills that are really still need to be developed. And I know that's going to turn a lot of people off because that's a, a quality that you should definitely, definitely look for in a quarterback to translate, you know, positively in the NFL. And if you don't have it, you may not ever develop it, but literally this guy has everything else because, you know, he has the body type of a Drake or Patrick of a William Jackson, but he's so much more physical than both of those guys. And those guys throughout the early portions of their careers dealt with missed tackles a bunch but he's actually one of the better tackling cornerbacks in the in this class. I think Pro, Fo- 
pro football focus has him in the upper 80th percentile in terms of missed tackle percentage. So when he when he touches guys, they, they go to the ground. So missed tackling is not going to be a problem with them. So he brings an asset to that. But also just being young and being in a defense that, you know, predicates themselves on these off-coverage looks, which is what the Bengals want to do with their cornerbacks, having the type of youth and the physicality that, you know, this team values at this position, while also not having to start immediately at a position that they should have, at the very least, two starters in you know on this roster right now. I think he becomes a really good option either in the second or third round of this draft class, really depending on how he tests at the combine. So we had a question in the live chat, John. I think it was from Death to Religion um, in the live YouTube chat. Uh, can he cover tight ends? He's a he's a cornerback. Like, is that is that is that just a joke at this point? Because that was what we that's what we asked when we were going over the linebackers. Like. He's he's a he's a boundary cornerback, and so right. if you're if you're on man coverage against Travis Kelsey, you're going to pick Kelsey to win that matchup anyways. But I, I think he has the athleticism to, to tack on with possession guys and and speed burner guys. So it really comes down to if his main question is physicality at the catch point against bigger receivers, then no, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust him to go up against the tight end in 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 inline formation. So he's just he's just a raw cornerback right now. He's very young and has the ability to grow into something more but you like what you see already with this tape and you, you like that there is potential room for growth. Yeah. I, th- I think the, the question maybe more stemmed is, you know, is there a, a, a dark Denard, maybe kind of comparison there where, you know, you mentioned he's more physical. He has the build of a Drake Kirkpatrick or a, right. or a, uh, you know, William Jackson, but it's, it's more physical than those two guys. So maybe that's where the, con- the comments stemmed. I'm going to go a little bit, uh, you know, low hanging fruit here and, and good stuff, John. Um, Appreciate that insight. I'm going to go a little low-hanging fruit, and it's because the Bengals do have the top pick in the NFL draft. And I'm going to go with Andrew Thomas, the the tackle out of Georgia. You don't really want to see the Bengals necessarily use the number one overall pick on Andrew Thomas from Georgia, uh, the consensus top tackle in the draft. But he is a guy that if the Bengals do happen to trade out, maybe they they switch with Miami or someone like that and they move back a handful of spots and he's there after some of those quarterbacks come off the board. That's a guy that, you know, you pair with a Jonah Williams to create bookend tackles for hopefully the next half to full decade. Um, and, and it seems like that's, that's where it could be. I, most people project Andrew Thomas to be a left tackle at the next level. That's probably where he's going to go. You obviously can play right tackle. So, you know, if, the, if a team like the Bengals wanted to do that, and if they are committed fully to Jonah Williams at left tackle, technically you could, you could throw Thomas at right tackle Mo- more than likely you would go the other way around. You probably throw Jonah at the right tackle spot and, and have Andrew Thomas be at the left side. He's six, he's massive, six, five, three twenty. Um, you know, there's, a, there is a lot to like about this young man. He, uh, you know, he's got some athleticism for his size. Um, he's, he's able to do a lot of positive things in the run game and the pass blocking game. Uh, he's, he's got power. He's got some finesse. There are a lot of things to like about him. And, you know, I, obviously Georgia is a, a talented team. And when you're able to do some things on offense, Likely, you know, Fromm has done some good things at quarterback, but, you know, they do like to run the football, and he's a big reason for that. Um, you know, he's, he's a big guy. He can do a lot of different things. If there are some weaknesses based on some things I've read and some things I've seen on his tape, um, you know, second-level blocking or pulling isn't necessarily his strength. 
Um, you know, that's not necessarily what you want to do with a regular on a regular basis with him, but he is a guy that, you know, can be your franchise tackle, especially if you are, are going to ha- need further protection for a franchise quarterback. He's a guy who can do that. The one thing that I saw on tape that bothered me a little bit, and granted it may, it may be cherry picking a little bit, um, against some of the, the better pass rushers, the kid, uh, the SEC defensive player of the year at Auburn and, and others, um, you know, there are times when edge rushers, he, he almost caught them uh, as he was, as he was going back into his stance and at the college level, because of his size and he's athletic, but because of his size, he's able to kind of do that and get away with that. He's able to kind of be able to let a guy go into him. And then because of his size, he's able to swallow that, that pass rusher with, with relative ease. Um, Or he kind of dances with him out. And maybe there's a little bit of a semblance of pressure that comes of that. But I saw him kind of catch uh, edge defenders at times rather than really strong arming them out of the way, really engaging with, with some strength. Now that there is a lot of that on his tape, but at times against some of the better pass rushers, I've seen him kind of let them come to him and he just kind of grabs, you know, grabs them as they come into them. And that was something to me that, you know, I wasn't overly enamored with, but if it's, if it remains effective at the next level, so be it. I think, you know, as you get to the elite of the elite in terms of edge rushers in the NFL, you know, your Vaughn Millers, these other guys, you know, Khalil Max, if you were to face some of these guys, you know, that they may provide a problem as they do with many offensive tackles. They may provide a problem for a guy like him uh, if he's going to utilize that kind of catch maneuver. Um, you know, and, and some of these, I noticed that some of these guys that gave him a little bit of fits in that way were the a little bit of the smaller quicker edge rushers not the the other mammoth edge rushers that you know he can kind of out muscle Um, but he does have very long arms which is what you want out of your offensive tackle he's got immense size he's got immense strength Um, he's got basically everything you want there are just a couple of nitpicky things that you see on film but all in all I mean you're probably looking at the next great tackle and that is a big commodity John in today's NFL because there are not a ton of great NFL tackles, uh, you know, it used to be tackles grew on trees and you'd be able to get bookend tackles and, and settle your line for years and years and years. That's not really the case anymore. Um, so to me, you know, if the Bengals do not go quarterback, this is the guy that they probably, you know, you, you talk about Chase Young. I, I would say in terms of overall talent talented prospects in the draft. Chase Young is probably the most talented player in the draft if he does decide to come out. Then you've probably got this kid, and then Joe Burrow is probably, in terms of overall talent, that's probably what you're looking at. But Burrow being the quarterback is obviously much more much more valuable. But uh, this, kid's, this kid's one of the most talented players in the draft, and, and it shows. So the hug technique – is something that David Bakhtiari really mastered over the past few years. And that's literally just, it's literally just ca- catching, you know, pass rushers off the edge in your stance. And it's something that Cedric away he tried to do, but we saw it didn't work because away he, while he had the length and the, you know, the, the size to do it, he didn't have the core strength to withstand, you know, bull rushes and, and stunt power in his stance. 
Thomas, you don't have that worry. And, you know, Willie Anderson will be the first to tell you that it's not always about first hands, it's about first low hands. So the ability to catch guys, but also get also leverage with your hands is most important. I think that's something that stands out with Thomas. While he he may not have that, that striking, you know, hands technique and in pass protection, he has the size to absorb basically right. everybody. And it's scary because I don't think he's going to test like Trent Williams because Trent Williams was – a freaking alien at the combine, and not right. remember that, but he moves very similarly, like similarly, similarly like him. And I know he doesn't; he's not the greatest at, at pulling and blocking in space, but that explosion and getting out in space—it's just remarkable for someone who's six five, three twenty-five to have that power to withstand, you know, power in pass protection, but also to move guys so easily off the line and also get out in space so quickly. It, it's rare, and it, it's it's like you said. There's a lot of debate with the offensive tackles in this class. I know people are going to like Jedrick Wills out of, out of Alabama and maybe Tristan Wirfs out of Iowa as, as your top guys. It may come down to preference, but Thomas just seems like a guy for a team that needs an offensive tackle. You just don't overthink it. He has everything that everything that you want, and while there could be based off preferences, who's better between the three, he's just a guy that you probably won't be able to go wrong with. Yeah, and pro scheme, I mentioned the, the, the Georgia – you know, the Georgia offense of what they like to do. It's a pro scheme. So he's, he's pretty ready right now. There might be a little bit of, you know, some growing pains here and there, but for the most part, like you said, don't overthink it. He's a guy that um, should be a, a relatively safe pick and uh, you know, should, should be able to help a team immediately. And like I said, you know, if it's not a sexy pick, if you're the Bengals and you, if you are the Bengals, you don't want to pick this kid number one overall over, you know, some of these quarterbacks and stuff, but it, it would be sensical if they move back out of that spot. Again, not a popular choice to be made there, but if they were to do that and move back a handful of spots and this kid's there, that's where you go. I think with Burrow young, maybe even Tua off the board, that's where you go to, um, you know, solidify that offensive line. Absolutely. So those are our next in the 2020 prospect watches. We continue these prospect profiles. We'll be doing them, but we'll also be bringing in some people that have the inside scoop with whether it's within the SB nation network of, of sites or other websites, draft websites, that sort of thing. We'll be bringing in some special guests as we continue these all the way up until the draft. Um, some a lot of interesting, interesting players to look at and to talk about, and a lot of possibilities. And the Bengals, you know, if if they're going to have a crappy year, at least the draft's going to be exciting because they'll have high picks in every round there. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. We're going to get out of here though. And John, before we do, we're, we've gone a little long, but uh, if you were to, if you were the Cincinnati Bengals, I mean, New Year's is upon us, right? And part of New Year's, aside from drinking champagne and maybe giving a loved one a smooch at midnight or whatever. Uh, Part of it is making goals and resolutions for the upcoming year and uh, trying to stick to those goals. I guess with 2020 around the corner and this being our last episode of 2019, what, what are maybe a, a couple of goals by the Bengals, their fans, what are, what are some resolutions that you would say should be on the slate for fans, the team, the players, whoever? With how important it was for this team to get the first overall pick, they cannot afford to put all this offseason on the draft. They cannot afford to put all their eggs in the Joe Burrow basket to expect 
him to make this team a contender. They have to go out before then and realize we don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of free agency. We don't have to blow all of our money where we get into dead cap, but we need a solid, at least two solid starters in free agency to with respectable deals that would rival a, mar- a market level deal. It's something, it's a reality that they have to face because of how much of a failure this past offseason was. The fact that they're even in this position now is a testament to how bad their plan was last year. They have the time, they have the continuity in the front office to reassess where they are and to make a solid plan to start building this roster into a contender where it can be comfortable for a franchise quarterback to thrive as soon as possible. They can't rely on the seven or eight picks, whatever they're going to end up with in this year's draft to really revamp this roster. It's just not going to be enough. There needs to be more noticeable turnover in the form of free agency. And they did make at, at, at the start of free agency last year, they did make some solid steps. They signed John Miller. They were thinking about signing Shaq Barrett, but as we saw, it just wasn't enough. And the, the obviously the retainment of, Bobby Hart and CG Zoma to deals like that really put them in a hole for what whatever flexibility that, that they that they had. But they need to come out with a solid, actual, legitimate free agency plan to to support their their first round quarterback, their franchise quarterback. Because if they do the same thing that they did last year, not much is going to change overnight for them. And I, I obviously that that would be what they would want to do. Yeah, I've I've got a few, uh, and that's a very good one, John. Um, and I'm going to kind of ride your coattails a little bit on the, on this. Uh, and it's kind of a macro idea that gets broken down into, you know, more micro segments, but you got to have a plan and you got to execute the plan. You have to. And for this team, and it's especially imperative for this team because of the limited resources that they have on the management side, on the scouting side, they need to know who they want. They need to identify guys early They and they need to, they need to, ha- they need to have a long-term vision going. Mm-hmm. They need to say, look, we're keeping no matter what, we're, we're tr- either trading out of this spot or we're keeping the number one pick and we're drafting Joe Burrow, we're drafting whoever. And this is the plan that we're going to utilize beginning this year in terms of building around that young man. Um, you know, they need to devise a plan. They need to execute the plan and they need to do it. They need to be meticulous with it because of the limited resources that I mentioned. If you have, you know, your, your margin for error as the Cincinnati Bengals is so razor thin because of the, the limited personnel that you hire that you have to be meticulous and you have to be dead on. And if you're going to largely rely on the draft, you have to be able to get guys that are, you have to hit, you have to have a higher hit rate. And you have to make sure that you've identified guys that you feel can come in day one and help this team right away. And that plan also has to do do with who you keep and who you don't keep. You know, what you're willing to part with, whether it's Andy Dalton, A.J. Green, and for what price or what, you know, what you're willing to, to do there. Uh, so to me, being meticulous with a plan and executing a plan to, to right the ship right away is imperative. For the, for the Bengals themselves, I think the other side of the coin, you have to be, you have to excite the fan base. You have to engage the fan base. You have to do something. This fan base is passionate, but they are, they are pissed, <laughs> but they're also apathetic and they're not showing up to games. They're not, they're not supporting the team and, and I can't fully blame them. They're not. They're not pay, you're spending a lot of money on on stuff, uh, to, you know, memorabilia or what have you. At least 
from what I understand, Ken Anderson got slighted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You need to do something to excite the fan base. Drafting Joe Burrow, that'll excite people, but that's not enough. You need to do more. You need to sign more players. You need to make this team a legitimate competitive and or competitive contender right away. And not only that, you need to make the fan experience a higher end. That's going to take a long time. That's going to take baby steps, but there are things that they can implement in order to do that. Um, so to me, engaging the fans is, is a must and doing things that will engage the fans is a must this year. And if you, and on the flip side, another resolution for the fans, if they are doing things that appear to be moving in the right direction, you don't want to give them the full benefit of the doubt right away and say, I'm right back in. But if they're making moves, if they sign a franchise, if they draft a franchise quarterback, if they do some things that excite you as a fan, then be, be a little bit more open to it than you may be at this moment in time is, is maybe my advice. And that's me included because I've been very, because of the last four years, I've been very just, and really since that playoff game, uh, it's been kind of just a little bit of a, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the right word for it, but. Uh, no, it's because like we thought, we engraved this thought in our minds that the only way that they're going to change is if they lose. And they've lost for the past four years now, and they've lost more this year than they've had in the past 20 years. So the losing right now is is done. And it's not, not saying they're not going to lose next year. I'm not guaranteeing success, but the the need for losing, I guess, the perceived need for losing, that, that's over with. And they have a new coach. They have a new coaching staff. They're going to get a new quarterback. Now's the time to start building, start hoping for wins for the sake of the future. Because before it was, they, they can only be forced to making decisions when they have no choice. Well, now they're going to make those decisions and now they got to make the most of it. And th this is the thing with the Bengals. Like, that we, we can want them to do all this stuff from free agency and, and just overall team building. They're not going to do all this in one year. And that's why we kind of think in our minds that this is going to take, this is going to take two or three years to slowly build this. And, you know, you, you would think that they would be able to do all this in one year, but at the end of the day, this is, that's kind of where the expectation of, you know, baby steps in general. So just yep. accomplish a few things at a time, see where it goes. Yep. And I, I think, you know, like we said, hopefully Zach Taylor becomes a guy that builds upon what Marvin Lewis was able to build and, and expand. And then he expands on it in the form of playoff wins, championships, that sort of thing. John, I'm, I, Hope you had a Merry Christmas, my friend. I hope you uh, you have a Happy New Year. I don't know if you're doing anything specifically fun to ring in the new year, but uh, have fun and be safe. Hopefully celebrating a win over the Browns. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 I think I think they need to I, – I mean, we could talk about that game too, I guess. But, uh, you know, I think that they need to win that game. Yeah. They need to win that game. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I think they need to win that game. And I, I actually think they will. I actually think they will. Um, I think the Browns are headed in a not great direction. I think Cincinnati has played better for the most part over the past handful of weeks. And, uh, you know, I, I don't see them breaking the single season worst for worst franchise record. I, I, I just don't see it happening personally. I would have more confidence if they actually won last week that they were, would win this and mess up the first overall pick. But now it's going to be a little more exciting, I think. Yeah, I think they're definitely going to be fired up. I think there's going to be more fans in that stadium naturally because it's against Cleveland and there's going to be Cleveland. and it's the last game of the year, yeah, and it's the last game of the year. But I I do think that this is a game that they should win. I think for once they they will win. Yeah, 
I, I agree. Well, have a have a happy new year, man. We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk next week, and uh, as we continue to bring you coverage, we'll uh, we may do a listener questions segment tomorrow. I, I haven't. We'll, we'll let you know if we do that. Uh, I have to converse with John here. Otherwise, maybe we'll we'll get to something. But uh, well, if you join us then, join us then. If not, we'll see you ne- for next week's episode or the post game reaction show, which we all give you here so keep it to the cincy jungle podcast channel to get our show and the others on the slate as well as uh, our youtube channel for all of our videos and whatnot we appreciate the support subscribe where you get your audio channels leave us a review and subscribe to our youtube channel as always keep it to cincyjungle.com for news opinions analysis all that good stuff and uh hope you had a merry christmas a happy hanukkah whatever you may or may not be celebrating happy holidays and have a good new year we'll see you soon